When it rains, hit the lathes. Experience the best in weatherproof fun at Bolero. Bowl, play games, and treat your taste buds to Bolero's signature menu. Don't get wet, go bowling. Visit Bolero.com for hours and weekly specials. You're listening to Turf Show Radio. With the first pick in the 2016 NFL Draft, the Los Angeles Rams select Jared Goff, quarterback, California. him at 1,000 yards on the button in his rookie season. And now, here's your host. Hey everybody and welcome to an all new Turf Show Times Radio. This is your boy Josh Webb coming at you once again with my partner in crime, Mycin the Deosaur. Mycin, how you doing, man? Man, I'm doing great. Loving this beautiful Midwest rainy weather we got going. (laughs) It's been kind of weird here in uh, SoCal, too. It's been rain mixed with uh, heat. But uh, our guest, who traditionally is used for probably more Bengals podcasts, but for our purposes, he's also part of Bleacher Report's NFL 1000, looking at the top prospects coming out into this year's NFL draft and his name is Mr. Joe Goodberry who can be found on Twitter at Joe Goodberry. Joe this has been a long time coming really appreciate you joining us. How you doing man? I'm doing fantastic thanks for having me. Ah it's 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 a pleasure not only are we going to pick your brain about football but I have a feeling there'll be some marble marble uh well I'd say arguments but they're probably going to be agreements so Yeah I can see that So let's go ahead and get started uh Mycin, I'll let you start off with the first couple questions since I normally do um go ahead and take it away All right so well, first off, thanks for coming on. <laughs> but I, can you hear me? Yep, I hear you perfectly. Okay, you guys are so quiet. <laughs> um, so, my first question you know, I have for you, and it's it's really interesting because you know with the uh, Bengals um, and Andrew uh, Andrew Whitworth, me being a huge fan of that signing, like I love the idea of. Um, Andrew Whitworth uh, becoming a Ram before it actually happened. Um, he was someone that I looked at as uh, a must, a person that you had to go after uh, in free agency if, you, if you're someone that's needing to upgrade your line. I didn't see any way that, considering that he was the top left tackle on the market, but then also what he brings just from experience and veteran leadership, as well as his all-pro rankings and pro bowls, like – 
his his list of accomplishments and experience just kind of goes on and on and on. And you know, I, I, I for one was really uh, excited to see the see that the Rams went after him. Um, being someone who covers the uh, Bengals, can you tell us a little more about Andrew Whitworth that fans should expect to get with him being on the t- being on the team and how he yeah. can help a young line? Yeah, of course. I mean, Bengals fans love him. Uh, he was so great for such a long time. It, it, it really sucked to lose him. I, I felt like every Bengals fan thought he was coming back. I mean, beat writers are putting it at 95% chance he'd be back with the team. He was just always dependable, always automatic. And, and I'm not just saying on the field. I mean, you always felt like he was had the team of best interest in, his, in, in, in mind. You always felt like he was putting the team first. Uh, just thinking of like the lockout year in 2011 uh, when the offseason was shortened, he was one of the guys that was getting the offensive guys together and he was running practices for them. Uh, and that was a team that a lot of people thought would go 0-16. That was the year Carson Palmer demanded a trade. They ended up making the playoffs that year. I think a lot of credit goes to him uh, stepping up as being one of the leaders and one of the voices and just being uh, a pillar of strength for the team. Uh, I think of one game in particular, too. It was against the Raiders shortly after that. Uh, well, Andy Dalton was the quarterback and, and Carson Palmer was with the Raiders at the time. And it was Palmer's first game back in Cincinnati uh, stadium. He said he'd never step foot in again, but a fight ensues in about the third quarter after a late hit on, on Andy Dalton. And in the middle of the pile of the fight, you see Andrew Whitworth's helmet get ripped off and you see his bald head steaming and he's six foot seven and some change standing over everyone. And he's fighting Tommy Kelly and Lamar Houston at the same time. And he's taking them on. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of guy he was. And I remember it was, it was only like a seven point game at game at the time. Well, all three players were ejected and he's just amping the crowd up on his way out and he's waving the towel and he's just, he looks nuts. And everyone was like, that's our guy. That's our leader. That's our captain right there. And the Bengals go on. And when I think the next play was like a 55-yard pass to A.J. Green, they, the team was just amped. They just ended up steamrolling the Raiders. Uh, and that's not the only fight he was in. He, he fought, uh, uh, forget his first name, Henderson, the defensive tackle from the Jaguars, and like his second year and took him on. And that's a big dude, too. It's just that's the kind of guy Andrew Whitworth is. And, and he's just a leader and, a, and a, just a strong presence veteran. But on the field, left tackle wise. Wise, pass protection wise, he's still as good as anybody in the league. And he's never been the most athletic guy, but technique wise and just being so big and such long arms and such strong hands, it is very hard to beat him. I, the few times I can even think of him getting beat in pass protection is normally because Andy Dalton held the ball too long or a guy just got the best of them and it was it never happened again for the rest of the game. Uh, as, as a run blocker, he's kind of gotten worse every single year. As you can see, the, some of the strength in his lower body uh, isn't what it used to be. I mean, he is older now. Uh, he's kind of had to transform his body a couple times through injuries and through uh, different playing styles. The Bengals have asked of him. And now at this point, he's not much of a power push blocker. He's more of a guy that you can pull and get into space and uh, get into the second level. And he's okay that way. But uh, overall, I mean, you're signing him because he's a, still a top five pass protector on the left side there. And uh, I would say you can expect that uh, not to carry on too much about Andrew Whitworth. I know uh, we probably got other questions, but one, I think a lot of concern. I believe we other had an teams- agreement. Hey, <laughs> that, we would, that we would let no, that we would let you talk about him. So okay. you were contractually <laughs> obligated to let you go on here. 
Okay, because I was going to go on for one other, like, and I don't know if you guys want to hear any concerns about him or if you just want to be happy. fans want to know everything about him. Yeah, I would agree. I would definitely agree. Well, the Bengals have had a lot of offensive linemen leave in free agency under Paul Alexander, who's their offensive line coach, and they've never seen the same success outside of Cincinnati. And it's kind of interesting as to why they do that. A lot of uh, analysts and and offensive line heavy guys will say that the Bengals teach their offensive linemen different techniques than other uh, other teams. And it, it takes a while for them to mold into shape. It may take a year or two, but once they get it, they normally perform pretty well. And the Bengals normally have a good offensive line and, and they've been able to stick guys in and out. And even though they've spent first and second round picks on a lot of positions, they normally can get production out of guys that have to step in or play, whether it's an Evan Mathis who who didn't have a career until he came with the Bengals, Anthony Collins who signed with the Bucks for decent money, Stacey Andrews was an offensive tackle, signed with the, uh, the Eagles for big money, uh, Levi Jones at the end of his career, well, I can't remember where he went now, but he didn't have the same success, Eric Steinbach and have the same success. There was a lot of guys that left and really didn't play as well as they did in Cincinnati. So it'll be interesting to see how the Rams do. I know uh, McVay coming from uh, coming from Gruden and Gruden coming from the Bengals. So maybe they're going to do similar things. Maybe they understand that completely. Uh, maybe there's a, a link there to, to what they know what they're doing. Uh, that's just one concern I would have as a Rams fan is uh, you know, will he see the same success? Not only just being at the end of his career, someone I'm sure people will say that's the first reason why he's not uh, playing as well, but it could be a little deeper than that. You know, I'm really glad that you mentioned um, McVay and uh, Jay Gruden uh, because that was kind of leading into the uh, next question I had for you. Um, the With Jay Gruden coming from Cincinnati, that was really kind of where he came to light. Before that, everyone just kind of knew him as John Gruden's brother, um, but he really kind of developed a name for himself in Cincinnati and the job that he was able to do with Andy Dalton. Really, since he got his hands on Andy Dalton, Andy Dalton hasn't been the same. You know, he's he, he's never really looked back. He's only gotten better and better since then. He's uh, a much better quarterback um, after Jay Gruden worked with him. Um, and then you look at with Sean McVay, um, uh, Sean McVay working under Jay Gruden and originally working under John Gruden, who we all, uh, I think, would agree is a pretty good uh, coach when it comes to quarterbacks. But uh, Jay Gruden going over there and then the work that he and Sean McVay was able to do with Kirk Cousins. How much of uh, the Gruden, would you say, has really rubbed off onto Sean McVay uh, just looking at Jay Gruden's track, track record and what he's been able to do? How comfortable should Rams fans be with uh, someone who's worked up under him and learned from uh, learned from him? Uh, someone that with Jay Gruden having that track record and coming to L.A. to a Jared Goff who um, he seems really eager to work with. I would expect the exact same offensive structure uh, with him only because he, like you said, he worked under both Gruden's uh, Jay was with the Bengals. And when he went to the Redskins, that is almost the exact same offense. I can watch a Redskins game and pretty much know what they're running and what they're doing just based on the three years with the Bengals. It looks very similar. The concepts are the same. The passing game is very similar. The running game is very similar. And, and I was, uh, uh, when the Bucks had Jake, uh, John Gruden, I'm sorry. Uh, I remember that offense and it was very similar again, uh, I imagine McVeigh is going to run a, 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 an almost exact offense if he can. You know, a lot of it's going to depend on the quarterback and Jared Goff, but 
I mean, a lot of people liked Goff, and and they liked him for a lot of the reasons uh, you would like Kirk Cousin, Andy Dalton. Now, I don't know. As Rams fans, you may expect more out of Goff being such a high pick, uh, but it's at the same the time. High pick. I think it's the capital. It's always the capital yeah. that they gave up. Yeah, the, the capital is a bigger they, deal. The number right. one the, doesn't mean as much as, holy crap, what'd you give up for number one? Right, because it, that kind of says that they knew what they were taking and that he needs to be that guy. Because it, when you yeah. spend that resource, you're confident in your pick at that point. Uh, so, yeah, I get that. But if he ended up being Kirk Cousins or Dalton, I think that you with the Rams, they have decent amount sure. of talent. If if you can get that out of him, I think most people would be happy for the most part until you need more come playoff time. But let's get to that first. So I think <laughs> Goff, ha- right? Yeah, I think Goff has a lot of those qualities that Cousins and Dalton share. So uh, I think what Gruden definitely does, and I expect this out of McVay and, and both Grudens really when I say that, is they help the quarterback see the field. They can cut it down for them if they need to. A lot of it is ha- reading half the field, and you see it with Kirk Cousins and, and Andy Dalton. Is They'll take it and make it based on pre-snap reads, and it, the whole offense is really predicated on pre-snap reads. What are you reading before the snap? And all the receivers are on the same page. The offensive line may be on the same page, too. And you're throwing to a spot at a certain time. The ball is coming out quickly. You're not relying on the offensive line to really hold up too long. And all the receivers have to be smart and run the right routes and at the right time. And the offense should succeed if he can read correctly and if he can throw on time with decent enough accuracy. Uh, one thing I like about Goff is I thought he had great pocket presence at Cal. Uh, I don't think he got to see it as much last year because I, I don't feel he felt as comfortable with that offense. So uh, it, starting from that, it's going to lead to negative looking plays on the field where it didn't really look like the golf we saw at Cal. So I'm hoping that the, that Gruden's offense and McVay's offense gets the best out of him. And I do think that there's a good chance that could happen. That's fair enough. And one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, because we've got about 10 minutes left before we got to get you out of here. So I'm going to burn a question about just that. And then I'm going Marvel because I'm, I'm getting my Marvel. <laughs> so you, you mentioned that, that, that obviously one of the problems Goff had last year was, I mean, it all comes back to the very beginning question that my, my son put forth about Whitworth. I mean, he had an offensive line that couldn't protect him to, you know, to save their lives. So uh, obviously they shore that up. They 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 added a center. Um, uh, I believe today, right, Myson? That is when correct. Did they add John Sullivan. Sullivan. John Sullivan today. Right from, yeah. Yep. This morning so they got him. They, they add. They add Sullivan. They already admit that Greg Robinson is never going to see the left side of the line again to save his life. Uh, probably to save Goff's life, actually. We know where Whitworth will be, but Woods has been signed. That still doesn't solve the problem of a marquee receiver for Goff to throw the ball to. He's got a Tavon Austin. He's got a Robert Woods. And he's got either a Mike Thomas or a, 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 a Tyler Higby, which we who we figure will, will feature more uh, heavily in this offense than in the previous offense, not that freshman tight ends typically have bang out campaigns. Um, who, let me ask you a two part question. Who's out there in terms of receivers that the Rams could get? Now keep in mind, they, 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 they only have 
second round pick at uh, you know uh, I believe it's thirty seven is their first uh, overall pick. If the Rams, let's just say a receiver was still there around 25 or something, and the Rams decide, you know what, we're going to take this second, package it with a sixth, and move up and get a guy. Who's a guy that could potentially be there from, like, the 25 to even the 37 range that the Rams could get and develop into a number one overall target? Like, is there a chance on earth that, like, a Corey Davis type falls that late? Not Maybe not him specifically, though him specifically, but somebody of his ilk that can just change a game. I do think the only number one receiver in this draft that I would bet on being a number one, I mean, I, there'd probably be a couple guys that emerged in the mid rounds, uh, but it would be Corey Davis for me. I think he has everything. And now recently it seems like teams aren't as hot on him as maybe some analysts are um, probably because he hasn't worked out. You know, if you can show you run a four, four, five and, and jump 38 inches, teams will buy in. But seeing it, seeing him at Western Michigan versus lesser competition, I think will keep teams at bay. I do think there's a chance he's there at 25. Some people have been saying, you know, this is a guy that don't be surprised if he's still there in the 20s and, and one of these good teams that are playoff teams end up with a really good receiver. It, I think if the Rams had that chance to move up, I mean, they just moved up last year and gave up all these resources. I, I can't imagine. I mean, you would know if they would do that again. That'd be surprising. But I'd love it if you want to surround your quarterback with, well, a, with, a, with a go-to guy. We looked into this, and in, in, in moving up about 10 spots has traditionally cost teams their their next pick, whatever it would have been, you know, the, uh, their first pick. Plus, like, a sixth or a seventh. And if, if, if the Rams had a number one overall target that was on their board and they could get it for a pick they were going to use anyways and something like a sixth, I could see them doing it even with low pick count. Like, they need yeah. a number one receiver. Jared Goff has to have someone. This was the NFL's worst offense. Right. Visually and, and statistically. Yeah, visually. But I was going to say maybe John Ross is there. And I don't think he's too similar to Tavon Austin, if that's a concern, because I think uh, Ross is more of a vertical threat. I think he's more of a Deshaun Jackson than than he is a, uh, you know, an underneath guy that's going to take a short pass to the house, which is how I view Austin. Um, but uh, maybe a John Ross is that guy who takes the top off and really opens it up for the guys underneath. I, I think Robert Woods is a nice complimentary guy, but for me, when I watched him in Buffalo, I thought he was best in the slot and I thought he was best on just third downs possession type guy with, with solid hands. Uh, Austin is still the guy they're going to try and get the ball to. It feels like. So it, for me, if I'm the Rams, I want a guy that can make contested catches, maybe add some size, uh, be a, uh, a vertical guy that can help in the red zone too. I think it gets very limited in the second, third rounds because a guy that comes to mind is Carlos Henderson of Louisiana Tech. Uh, he was really good in, in contested situations. He was fantastic after the catch, which if we're talking – 
Yeah, if we're yeah. talking about a yeah. short passing game, quick passing game, you want to get the ball in his hands quick, uh, he would be an ideal guy. Now, he doesn't really add the size, but when you watch him in contested situations, it's, it's really not even a concern because he makes up for it. Uh, that would be an ideal pick. I expect him to be there at the 37th pick, maybe even into the third round. Uh, some people have him. So that would be someone I would target as as an upside guy that maybe ends up being a, a good NFL starter uh, after the first round. Yeah, I know that'll make Brandon Bate really happy, too. He <laughs> the hell out of that guy. <clears throat> All right, yeah. so I got to get into it, man. Let's 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 talk about some Marvel. I want to know, oh, yeah. what is your, let's say, let's say your, your, your top five movies that are out and your top five all-time, like, series, actually, let's say characters. Okay, so we're talking just Marvel movies, then. Obviously, we're not. Uh, yeah, Marvel into... movies, and you don't okay. have to use the MCU. Like, say, for instance, you hmm. really oddly like the Thomas Jane Punisher, which I did. You could throw that in there if you wanted to, or even the Dolph Lundgren version if you wanted to. <laughs> you know, because now I'm considering Spider-Man movies because as my favorite <laughs> character easily. So now I'd have to think about that. Because uh, I was ready for some MCU top five easy, I can say is probably Iron Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, Winter Soldier, Avengers, and Civil War for me. I mean, I put them in any order you want. I think those are their five A plus movies right there. Uh, but if I've got to open it up to the entire Marvel un- universe of movies, uh, Spider Man Two, the original Spider Spider Man trilogy, Spider Man Two versus Doc Ock. I mean, that's that's definitely up there for me, just because at that age, Alfred I was Molina right for, crushed it. Yeah, he looked just like him, sounded like him. He was, you know, he, he had a lot of depth really to him. Well. Yeah, and when you can do that, uh, that's always gonna, and especially at that age, I was probably I don't know what that come out in like two thousand five or so. So that, that probably was perfect time to capture my imagination um but and then uh maybe you go on to i don't know if i if you like if you do are we counting x-men movies yeah i guess uh, they are marvel but are any of them that good are any of the x-men that good yes first class was phenomenal yeah okay you're right you're right i always forget first class but you're right it that one was fantastic completely crap all over it like they're like you know what we're gonna do we're going to take this reboot, not do it, bring in a whole bunch of characters that make no yep. sense, and then mess up the storyline in a horrifically awful way that completely ruins the Days of Future Past storylines. I know, because Days of Future Past is so fun. And plus, the, like I remember Days of Future Past from the cartoon, the 90s X-Men cartoon, and I thought that was what it should have looked like and it wasn't that at all i mean it works for their universe i guess but i mean logan was really good i don't know if you guys have all seen that uh, and I then obviously deadpool you I, thought did it was really? see it. I didn't see it because i was terrified that it was gonna make me hate uh wolverine and that's my favorite x-men <laughs> so i, I did not I, I did not go see it <laughs> See, are, are you comparing it to Old Man Logan? Because that was obviously they couldn't do no, that. No, the completely. reason that I hated it is because it really, it really did nothing. All right, first of all, it, it supposedly didn't exist in the same continuity. I don't think it did, it, right? 
You no, know, they, they they said flat out that it didn't. It, oh, really? It, okay. Yeah, they, they said that it didn't. But at the same time, it still had hints of it. They never really explained how adamantium was killing somebody with a healing factor right. that was off the charts. Um, Professor X kind of went out, I don't know, like a wimp. And, and, and then... Logan, like, where was Eden? Like, we didn't even get to see Eden. Like, it just ended in the woods. Sorry, spoiler. Like, it just ended yeah. in the woods. It was like, the whole movie was like, hey, we're going to go from in the middle of nowhere to another place that's in the middle of nowhere. Except... Right. On the way, you know, this person's going to learn about himself. And honestly, people are like, it showed a different side of him. No, it didn't. He was still a dick the entire movie. Yeah. Until the <laughs> very end. Like, you I know what, honestly, though? Go ahead. I was going to say, the one thing I was waiting for in all the Wolverine movies, because I never felt like he fully fought like Wolverine from like what I remembered in the comics and cartoons. You know, he should have been more animalistic, should have used his senses, his agility a little bit more. Yeah. And then X-23, the girl, she fights exactly like what you want from Wolverine for uh -huh. so long. And that really, every time she was fighting someone or, or, or lashing out, I was like, yes, this is That's what Wolverine what looks wanted. like. This is how he'd fight. Yeah, she was the best part of that movie, no doubt, especially the way she performed most of her kills. But yeah, outside of her, it just, I don't know, like I kind of, Caliban was awesome, but you yep. know, I mean, he, he he got a limited role. I don't know. There's so much more I could say, but you have a, a Niners podcast in, in three minutes. So Do I? Oh, man. It's I know, I know. <laughs> Niners. Woo! Go Niners! You're making your NFC West. What we should do is we have a, a Hyrule Huddle podcast that I do with my buddy Kevin uh, where we actually talk about nerd and sports stuff. Kevin on CFB. He's the, he's the college football talk writer uh, for, for NBC. Uh, we should have you on that and uh, for one of our next episodes, and we can yeah, that sounds fantastic. In more depth, but before you get out of here, real quick, tell people where they can find you on Twitter and anything that you want about upcoming projects. Uh, best place to find me is obviously at Joe Goodberry. Exactly how it sounds. Uh, the Ble Bleacher Report, the NFL 1000, where we scout players every week and grade them. That's ending soon. We have reports coming out for every team that's going to look at the draft and uh, go position by position. Uh, the Rams may be coming out soon if it did not already. Uh, besides that, most of my stuff is on Twitter, and I link everything, and I like to just talk and have a good time, so hit me up there. I can confirm that, that he does. Joe, I will definitely be shooting you a text to set up a time for us to continue this conversation. You go talk about those pesky whiners. <laughs> uh, we will be right here. Thank you so much, man. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. So, that, uh, you know, there, there's a number of ways that they can go around, uh, the Rams can go about the draft. We've talked about a couple of them. Do any of those names that he said, if they're there, do, do those names make you want to move Mycin? I know Corey I mean, Davis I, makes you. 
I was gonna say. I mean, I mean, I think it's a well-known fact now that if Corey Davis is there at twenty-five, you know, just twelve picks up, I'm going to get him. That's that's just me. Uh, I would trade the second, and I would trade, you know, a fifth and next year, a next a pick next year. Uh, definitely go get him. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Because again, I think people think that it, it's going to cost too much because it's the first round. You're moving from the second round to the first round, but it's not the same when you get out of the top 10. And, uh, the value drops drastically. <laughs> um, it, it's really, really not the same. So I personally believe that, you know, you give up your second or, you know, give up a second, one of your fourths, you know, you do have two fourths with the uh, comp- uh, compository pick. Um, you can give up a second. You can give up fourth. You can give up a, a pick next year, and that would be enough to give, get get you up to uh, ten spots to pick a player that might be, you know, still Especially on the board that you didn't expect that to see. Known to, 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 to be movers, you know, there exactly. are teams out there that are like, you know, we're happy to trade. We don't like. I think the Patriots are allergic to first round picks. <laughs> they don't believe in using them for something. I don't know what it is. I'm always shocked that very rare time where it happens. The you Patriots know, actually see, use it. When you see they use their first round pick, I'm always like, what? But then the player never pans out. So I'm like, why are you guys so good? Like, you never you never hit on your first when you do use it. Who did they pick <laughs> you know, last year? Uh, last year, I actually think they traded down. The year before that, they picked Malcolm Brown, defensive tackle. And last year, I think they traded down. <laughs> uh, typical, typical, typical uh, Patriots fashion. <laughs> Let's see here. Pats, 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 Pats. The Patriots. Oh, nope. They did not trade down. Roger Goodell took them of it. Ah, that's right. They would have traded down. <laughs> Yeah, Roger that is right. relieved them of the pick. That is what ended up happening. So you can pretty much find a taker no matter what. Like, whether it's the Patriots, whether it's the, uh, I don't know, the Packers. Just the, the point there being is that I think we both agree there are a number of teams that are that are available to... to uh, negotiate with it for trade um yeah absolutely so so outside of Corey davis because that's a layup for you outside of Corey davis did any of the did, were any of the other names needle movers for you i would say john ross uh i think that john ross and um is he's someone that even before he ran the four two two or whatever he ran you know um He's someone that I look at and I say, man, this guy is really underrated as just a receiver. Uh, I think people always look at him and they just think speed. They just think deep threat. But I actually think he runs more of the route tree than he gets credit for, and he's really good at it. Um, I don't think he's a uh, a coming into the NFL such a complete receiver. You know, he's a, he can just come in and just take over your game as a number one receiver, chain over anything like that. You know, he's no, uh, and I'm thinking smaller receivers here, he's no uh, Deshaun Jackson, Steve Smith. He's none of those guys yet, but he could be. Um, I think that when you really look at what he brings to the table right now, outside of his speed, is he has uh, unbelievably uh, quick cuts in and out of breaks. So he creates separation almost naturally. 
um, which is huge for a rookie, you know, um, to create separation in the NFL as a rookie receiver is just, you know, that's really when you show the show that you belong in the league, when you can do that and it becomes natural to him because he has such quick cuts and uh, he's decisive in his breaks. He really does a good job of setting up defenders. So I think he's a better route runner, uh, a more complete route runner than he gets credit for. He's not just a deep threat or a guy that you want to throw a screen to. He's not Tavon Austin at all. They're two completely different players. Um, He's actually bigger than Tavon Austin, you know, so um, I definitely would like John Ross. I think that that would be a good option. Another guy who I'm not so sold you know, I thought that he'd be there earlier in, earlier in the season, pro, you know, all the way up until the senior bowl, really, for the most part. I thought he'd be there available um, in early second round. Um, but Zay Jones, I'm starting to get the feeling and I'm hearing all this rumbling. I really think there's a chance he could sneak into the back end of the first round. But if he's, you know, if he's in that range and the Rams, uh, you know, they have the opportunity to go get him, I think he would be a great addition. Um, he surprised everyone, myself included, because you never really got to see that four, four, five speed uh, in the offense that he ran. You never got to see that. I never in a million years thought that he could move that fast. I thought he was more of a four, five, five, four, five, eight guy with that was, you know, just a really good possession receiver. But then he goes and shows everyone that he's not just a possession receiver, but he's a guy who can really stretch the field. He can really, you know, so he can work, he can move the chains intermediately or he could take you deep as well. So I think that really just kind of drove his stock through the roof. Um, so uh, I, I would definitely say that there's a couple of guys that you could look for in that range. But then also I do I do love Carlos Henderson. He's someone that I like during the season, like just like watching him play. And uh, he's someone I think you could get in about the third round, although I wouldn't be shocked if he's gone in the second round. That would not shock me at all. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, the interesting thing about a lot of these guys is that Especially, you know, you look at so like Matt Harmon and his reception perceptions. There's a lot of these guys have, I don't want to say complete, incomplete route trees, but like they'll be like three quarters, <laughs> and then another guy will be three quarters, and and then the, but like half of it will be questionable. So. I feel like there's a lot of guys in here that have the potential to be absolute breakout studs as well as absolute busts, you know. I feel and I'm and I and I'm not feeling like there's more bust than boom. I'm just saying I feel like it's one of those types of drafts where those things can go that way if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Whenever you have a draft that's loaded with um, guys that's really, really, the, the draft is really going to be the meat and potatoes in the the middle rounds. And it's not to say that the first round isn't good. You know, you can look at, for example, um, the 2013 draft, you know, where the first round, it just, you know, there was a lot of guys that went in the first round by force, you know, because you had to make a pick, you know, whereas another draft, they might not have been first yeah, round. Yeah, absolutely. Pick. You know, I, so I, it's not. I was going to ask you, do you feel like this is the type of draft where because they're it's so loaded at, at, at a couple different positions that as the dominoes start falling, do you feel like this is the type of draft that could screw up a whole bunch of teams draft boards? 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's what and that's kind of what I was getting to. Like, it's not that the middle rounds are so loaded because the first round is terrible and everybody's just kind of middle round talent. That's not the case at all. It's just that everyone is so good. You know, and I, I'm on record, as I've said it quite a few times, I personally feel that I can count 50 first round picks. Like, I really believe that there will be a lot of players that's going to spill over into the second round who could go in the first round. You know, I would say that I can guarantee that I can name 40 players that I would call first round picks. And I, I would say that there's some borderline guys. That's uh, another 10, another eight or 10 guys. That's borderline to give you about 48, 50. Um, but I can 100% guarantee feel comfortable, comfortable picking 40 different players in the, in the top 32 picks. So uh, it's a, it's a legitimately loaded draft. And that's what makes those middle rounds so good. And because of that, <laughs> I do think that when you start to see, um, you know, in the third round, when guys are when, the, when certain positions are starting to dwindle down, because they're going to th- th- when you look at the safety position, these players are going to come off quick. There's not a lot of playmaking safeties that can bring the wood, can do all these things that these guys can do in this year's draft. There's some true ball hawks in this year's draft, guys who just have natural instinct, are always around the ball. Then You know, they can, you can put them down in the box. You can play them deep. You can cover the slot. There's a lot of versatility in this safety class. These safeties are going to come off early and often. And when you see those numbers start to dwindle down, you can, you're going to see teams start trying to hurry up and take get their guy before it's too late, you know, uh, probably around that third round. So you're going to see guys get reached for. You're going to see guys uh, get left on the board because of that. You know, so it's going to be interesting to see how the chips fall um, because the draft is so deep. But when you when you have that first position group that's really deep start to get thin, then that's when you're going to see everything kind of go haywire. But then that means another position group is going to slide some because everyone's trying to get the guy while they still can for, from the first position group. So it's, it's, it's always interesting trying to figure out how that's going to happen, especially when you have that opportunity to do so, because it's not every year that you see a draft this loaded where you can just run through safety, defensive line. Um, I think this defensive line class is, you know, for the first time in a long time, not getting the attention that it normally does. Um, it's kind of been looked over because there's so much talent in other positions. I mean, this is the best linebacker class I've seen probably in about five or six years. Uh, there's a lot of good linebackers that's going to go. Um, and we might see three or four linebackers go in the top 35 picks, which we haven't seen in a while. You know, um, you know, and I'm, when I say linebackers, I'm not meaning just edge rushers. I'm talking about like inside guys, inside linebackers who can really get after you. Um, this is a really, really, really good draft that I think uh, a lot of teams are going to have an opportunity to get better with. Uh, if you if you don't have a pick in the top 35, which would be like the Patriots, a few I think there's like two teams that traded out in the first round that don't, um, then you're going to still be okay because there's going to be so many players that fall over to you. So this is this is a really good draft to get better in if you're being smart with your picks. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like uh, that's. A, and, and I also feel like there's an element of luck here. I think that with a lot of these guys, there's a potential for it to go a couple different ways. But at the same time, I feel like the thing with that draft is that's what makes it. That that's why there are so many good players in the right system. These guys can flourish. They can thrive. They can. 
help your offense move. They can get you points or on the opposite side of the ball. They know exactly where to be. They know how to run stuff. They know how to get to the quarterback, you know, um, and you mentioned that you thought that there was uh, defensively, it's it's a little underrated. Do you want to expand a little bit on that before we get to our next guest? We got like about maybe like two, three minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Like when I look at this um, defensive line, um, it's it's really a really a good draft. Um, there's a lot of players that's you know everyone's saying that the number one player in this draft is a defensive lineman. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of been the case for, you know, most, most drafts uh, over the last uh, five or six years, you know, with the exception of, of the Andrew Luck draft for the, uh, the Jameis Winston, Marcus Mariota, you know, there's been a few guys where this has been kind of, everybody's been looking at them and saying, Hey, you know, this quarterback is probably the best player in this draft. But outside of those few examples, it's really kind of a training towards the defensive line where you're seeing defensive linemen uh, being being tabbed as like the best. And this year, it's you're not hearing a lot about the defensive linemen. Um, it's really starting to go towards uh, like safety and which is which is weird because you don't see safeties at the you know at the top like that between Malik Hooker and um, uh, what is his name? Jamal Adams. Uh, you, these are, these are two players who almost unanimously you're seeing in the top five for big boards for teams across the board. So I feel like the defensive line is almost getting overlooked. Um, I look at this defensive line this year, the defensive uh, line, the players in the defensive line group this year, and there's some really, really good players you know, it doesn't just stop with Garrett. You know, there's it's a lot of a lot of good players, and I think that this this group is going to be really similar to the 2011 group where you saw JJ Watt and you saw Robert Quinn. You know, you saw these players get picked up in the, the careers they've gone on to had to have. You know, so I think it's going to be really similar to that one where there's some some names that's kind of flying under the radar. You look at J.J. White, you look at Robert Quinn, they were not top 10 picks. You know, so I think that's going to kind of be the case where these guys are kind of flying under the radar because other positions, just like 2011, where you had two receivers who were like guaranteed top 10 picks with A.J. Green and Julio Jones. You know, you had Cam Newton, you had Patrick Peterson, you had all the skill positions getting all the top, top 10 love. And then those defensive line players really kind of slid under the radar and they've really flourished since then. I think it's going to be really similar to that. That's fair. That's I I would I would argue that's probably fair. You know, it's interesting as I look back at that. Uh, I was thinking about that 2012 draft with Luck, and just thinking about wow, if you were to go back and run that back, like let me just do the top ten picks here, okay? Buffalo. Stefan Gilmore. Carolina, Luke Keekley. Okay, solid damn pick. Miami Dolphins, Ryan Tannehill. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, guess who? Mark Barron. <laughs> Dallas Cowboys, Maurice Claiborne. 
Jacksonville Jaguars, Justin Blackman. Minnesota Vikings, Matt Khalil. Okay, that was a damn good pick. <laughs> uh, Cleveland Browns, Trent Richardson. And then you obviously had Griffin and then Luck. That yeah. top 10 is hot garbage. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> the disappointment was uh, real with a lot of those players. Dude, I wouldn't I mean, call it hot garbage because it's not the worst I've ever seen. Definitely not the worst. But it was. Uh, there's a lot of disappointments in there. Yeah. You know, that first round in general was not that good like yeah i mean yeah people like nick perry from usc i mean i don't know that he was a first round pick brandon whedon to the browns i mean i bet they really wish they'd thought that one over yeah and i i agree with what you're saying and that's what makes it so interesting when you see those top 10. And I'm not saying that the top 10 picks won't work out this year. I have a lot of faith in the guys who's uh, projected in most cases to go in the top 10 this year. It's just when I look at what's going to fall out of the top 10, uh, specifically on the D-line, I, I really I, I'm constantly thinking of the 2011 draft because there was a lot of players that was not top 10 picks. Mm-hmm. that are top 10 players now. You know, that, um, oh, absolutely. You know, and I've mentioned J.J. Watt and Robert Quinn, but then you had uh, Ryan Kerrigan and you had Corey Legit and uh, you had Muhammad yeah. Wilkerson and uh, Cameron Jordan. You know, there's just there were so many <laughs> that and none of them went in the top 10, you know, and they were all overlooked. The defensive line and the uh, pass rushers, they just weren't looked at as the the the, the meat and potatoes of the, the first round. But I mean. You can make the argument that they that the defensive line uh, group has had the most success from that draft. I mean, you had Bob by Miller case in point, in Demarco the, Demarco Murray was a third round pick. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think this draft is going to be very similar to the 2011 draft. That 2011 draft was uh, something special. Jarell, if you ask me, Jarell, you know, Jarell Casey went. In the you third had round Randall Cobb. Randall Cobb was the 64th pick in that draft. I will never forget that because I really, really wanted the Rams to draft him. <laughs> and I will never forget that he went at 64 overall. You know, and you had Justin Houston, who I think was a third or fourth round pick. And it's just it's crazy when you really just kind of look at some of the names that came from that draft. Uh, that was a really, really good draft. Uh, draft reflections brought to you by Mason <laughs> and Josh. It's like hey, you can't romance. forget that was the year you it's had like, Ryan Mallett. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Third, round. third round. He owned <clears throat> the third round. And we are pleased now to be joined by the voice of the Los Angeles Rams. You know him as J.B. Long. We just know him as J.B. Long. Hello, J.B. Gentlemen, how's it going? Thanks for the introduction. That's uh, that's all I've ever called myself, so we'll stick with it. Hey, <laughs> I uh, you know, I I 
<laughs> I, I want to talk to you about a tweet because, I mean, I, I, for people who don't know Yogi Roth, he amazing individual, uh, probably one of the most unique and uh, experienced characters you'll ever meet in your entire life. Uh, but uh, he had a, a movie called Life in a Walk, and uh, at the debut, there were, were, were sunglasses. And JB not only went to the debut... But to this day, he still wears the sunglasses. What I want to know, JB, is this. How the hell have you kept a pair of sunglasses for that long of a time period without anything happening to them? That's a, uh, that's a really astute question. I don't have an answer for it. I am sure that you... You have just spelled their doom by mentioning them. Uh, I'm sure that we'll run over them with the kids' stroller tomorrow, first thing, while we're out. But, um, <laughs> yeah, everything that you said about Yogi is true. It's uh, a privilege knowing him and calling him a friend. And that film was tremendous. Hard to believe it's been two years. And uh, I, I, my annual sunglasses budget is somewhere between, like, 4 and $8. So that's why I think I value them as a prized possession, and I'm careful not to lose or break them because otherwise it means a, a trip to CVS to replace them. Ah, and, and they wouldn't look nearly as cool. If you haven't seen them, you can go back and scroll through JB's Twitter. He actually posts a picture of them. They've got the name of the film right there on the side of them in this cool... Uh, I call I call it the dark cheetah. It's like the dark cheetah look. That vintage... Yeah, I couldn't pull off the light cheetah. Yeah, light cheetah is, is for a different class of people. I'm I'm a dark cheetah person myself. I don't I couldn't pull I can't pull off light cheetah. Um Well thankfully Yogi well, has good taste in addition to all of his other positive attributes. If there's one thing that nobody has ever said about Yogi is that that man does not know how to dress. Yep, that's true. <laughs> and if somebody has said it, they are haters of the highest degree. Because Yogi just walks into a room and he's instantly the most stylish person there. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it could be a black tie affair where everybody's required to wear the same outfit. Like, it's been pre-purchased. It's all been pressed by the same tailor. Everything has been done, you know, like the same dry cleaners got it, like, all suited and creased. Yogi'd walk in. His would just look better than everybody else's. It's just fact. <laughs> but what we want to talk about today are the Los Angeles Rams. And uh, obviously, there we have a, a couple different topics that we've been talking about leading up to the draft. And that schools of thought is is the most dominant one. Now, there's a couple ways the Rams can go where you identify the, the player that you do want, um, target that, you know, try and target that those players as best as you possibly can within the picks that you have and then go from there. There's best player available strategy. Um there's also the, uh, the, the the strategy of of trying to be shrewd and acquire more picks through through the draft. Uh, 
Uh, and then there's just a, a, the idea that the Rams should go for a position first, like either a wide receiver out of the gate or uh, an offensive lineman to help out, which I think though that that's kind of been allayed with with the addition of of Andrew Whitworth, who we had Joe Goodberry uh, on earlier, and and he broke down Andrew Whitworth, uh, and then the Rams recently today signed uh, John Sullivan, um, who is a center. So those you know the the, the the idea that they're going to the draft and get an offensive lineman with their first pick kind of seems far fetched at this point. But you have wide receiver, and then you have some people saying that they need to address the defensive line because, well, well frankly, Robert Quinn's getting older and Aaron Donald doesn't have much help. Um, what do you think is, is sort of, in general, what have, what's been your experience with, with the, the – Types of strategies used, how GMs arrive at that decision, and then what goes into that process. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating topic this time of year, and I think the philosophy is is a good debate and a conversation to have, especially as we get a, kind of a new look at Les Snead uh, without you know, Jeff Fisher's influence and instead with Sean McVay's partnership and influence. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that plays out with respect to the Rams. Uh, my thought on that has always been that you do your homework in advance with an eye towards taking the best player available. It, it kind of simplifies and streamlines your draft room. That being said, I, I think it's human nature and certainly football nature that your evaluation of a player and certainly in the heat of the moment, the, the player that you want to take off the board is probably influenced at least in some way by your team's need. Uh, if you have a desperate need at cornerback, my hunch is a new crop of cornerbacks, especially in a, a draft that is rich with that position, uh, probably makes a corner look incrementally better than, say, a defensive tackle, uh, which you might think you have covered. Um, so, you know, it's impossible to know based on just public commentary which direction uh, a general manager is going to go on, on draft day, and that's not specific to less. That's, I think, across the NFL. Yeah, I don't think they're going to be tipping their hands one way or the next either. It'd be a, it'd be a fool's errand to do so. I think you'd be out of a job. Hey, we're going to take – unless you have the number one overall pick where you can do that, it's it's generally a bad idea to tell people who you're going to pick. Um, what, you see, you go with that best player available, acknowledging that, some, that, that sometimes best player available happens to coincide with team need. As you look across the board, the Rams have filled a number of positions this offseason. The addition of Whitworth, absolutely an A-plus signing by the Rams in the offseason. John Sullivan represents definitely an an upgrade from Tim Barnes without even having stepped on the field um, in most people's eyes. Uh, Robert Woods coming back to the Coliseum, he had, you know, a mixed bag in Buffalo, but Woods is a quality position receiver and will definitely be uh, an outlet for Goff in the offense. Um, 
you know, as you look at what the Rams did in free agency and what's still to be done, how do you see it? Well, I think they took um, the edge of desperation off of some of their position needs, right, in terms of the conversation we're having about how it pertains to the draft. Uh, They're not in a position now where they absolutely have to draft a corner at 37 no matter what else is available to them, or they have to draft a left tackle or a center. I mean, they have those needs in terms of pure bodies and camp competition at least addressed in some preliminary way. Now, in all likelihood, are they going to add another or multiple others at receiver, at corner and or safety, at linebacker, at tight end, maybe even at running back? Yeah, I mean, that would I think anyone who takes kind of a high-level view of the Rams' needs and what's available in that draft would hope that at the end of draft weekend, uh, we're discussing a class of eight or maybe more, or maybe you know six or seven, depending on how they use their draft day equity, um, that has provided quality depth um, at a position of need. And so I, I think by adding some of the names you mentioned, including Sullivan today, uh, hopefully that takes uh, an, any hint of desperation in terms of position need slightly off the table so that uh, the team that they've assembled for their, their war room can make uh, kind of objective decisions more aligned with, you know, hey, which – which of the players available is going to put us in position to bolster our roster for four, maybe five years under his rookie contract. You know, I, I look at the Rams current roster and um, I look at being in LA, you know, there's the number one thing that people always said when the Rams were going back to LA is, you know, they have to win because it's so easy to lose the attention of the people in LA because there's so much to do. Um, looking at this draft, you know, and looking at their roster, and like you said, there's they have holes, you know, positions of need all over. Um, but if we could narrow it down to just a few players that the Rams that would be fill a need, but would be big enough splash to really bring excitement to the city of LA, if we could just narrow it down to a few. You name three players, who would it be? Boy, you're talking about landing someone at 37 or beyond who would yeah, at, at 37, draw cool, eyeballs cool. to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll kind of maybe think of this in a way that's uh, more generated by name recognition or household familiarity as opposed to necessarily who I think or my gut tells me might actually wind up in, in the White Horns next year. But um, – uh, you know, if, if a tight end like, I don't know, maybe Evan Ingram were still there and available, that would be a thought. I'm a big fan of Buda Baker, uh, safety from Washington. It seems like he might be available at the top of the second round going into day two. Love uh, I'd be a big fan of that pick. I think if, um, if one of the trio or quartet, I'm not sure of, you know, what you would term LA kids, whether that's Dory Jackson, Juju Smith, Tech McKinley, if one of those kids, I think that pick might resonate on day two, uh, just because of the local tie and the fact that they're, you know, familiar commodities from playing in the Pac-12, and also have have performed well at the combine and at pro days, and so they're well thought of not just here locally but across the NFL. Uh, that that probably would be my my short list. If um, and then I, you know, in the back of my mind, I've 
you know, my heart broke for Sidney Jones when uh, he was injured on his pro oh, yeah. to use another Husky as an example. Uh, you know, yeah. I know given, given the lack of top end picks, uh, would it be risky for the Rams to roll the dice on, on someone coming off a, a fairly significant injury, injury? Sure. But if that puts him, you know, if he had a first round grade in your mind and it puts him in contention, you know, in the high, in the high to mid thirties as someone you could grab, uh, especially since that's, you know, if not this year, a position of need, certainly long-term going to be a position of need, depending on what happens with true, um, then, then that would be another one that would appeal to me. And I think would be a, uh, Didn't, uh... a sellable narrative. Maybe if that makes sense to the fan base is, Hey, we got a, we got a great steal here. Can I ask yeah, a absolutely. question about, can I ask a question about Jones real quick? I think you might, uh, know this JB wasn't, uh, Jones is the cornerback that got injured, right? Right. Right. Okay. Yeah, the didn't, Washington did, cornerback. Yeah. Yeah. Did didn't Jones have, didn't he like give up? Wasn't it like one touchdown and that 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 was it, or was it like no touchdowns? Yeah. Didn't <laughs> yeah. that that was that was the guy? Yeah. I mean, he yeah. was like he was. Ba- Everyone talked about Adoree Jackson, who actually gave up quite a few touchdowns. But, like, that dude was a legitimate lockdown, shutdown corner. Like, you just didn't pass on Right. Him. Right. Well, I'm thinking, yeah, think I'm, about that secondary as a whole with him and, and Buda Baker and Kevin King. And then, you know, you, you, they probably look all the better because of the pass rush, the ability for, of Washington to get to the quarterback and vice versa. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the defensive line and the linebackers likely look better because of their coverage ability. So uh, make no mistake, that was a quality Washington defense. And I think you're seeing those returns show up in terms of how these players are being slotted on a lot of boards. I would absolutely agree with that. Um, I think that that Washington defense just overall is probably was probably one of the more underrated defenses during the season it didn't get talked about enough considering how good they were uh so i i would agree with you you know i think city jones would be a great pickup you know um in that second round if because uh, i think there's i'm not sold that he is there at 37 but i think that, that would be a great pickup um so yeah, just kind one of thing about court. that I, I will say just about that group of huskies and i'll let you move on just because they're familiar yeah. to me is they're all going to take they're all going to take coaching really well and I think they're all going to transition from college to the NFL really well, just because I know the people that they work with in Seattle. And uh, I imagine if you get a good recommendation from Coach Peterson or her, his staff on a young man, uh, chances are <clears throat> that individual is going to show up uh, to rookie minicamp and be in a great position to succeed right away in this league. And you look at the players they've already turned out and the impact they've had in the NFL, like just right yeah. away, like that, that, that deep people talk a lot about USC's defense, but man, Washington's defense is, is you talk about pro ready NFL defenses. It doesn't get said enough about them, man. Like they, they're, they're something special. And Peterson always thought if, you know, it, Peterson was always going to end up in the Pacific Northwest. Anybody who knew the situation with Peterson knew that it was always going to be staying in Boise or Washington or Oregon. And when Oregon opted to go with Helfrich, which with Helfrich, which I think was, look, I love Mark, but Oregon had a chance to go grab Chris, and I, I think he would have. I, I think they would have had their coach for for the next decade and 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 they let it go and and now washington is 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 
already reaping the benefits, and I think they're going to continue to for a long time coming. And that's to say nothing of Health, because he did a heck of a job there for a couple of years and then just ran into some bad luck. And, and, you know, I'm sure he'd say he didn't get the job done, but certainly things went against him there in the end. And uh, but, but I always thought that Oregon missed one by letting him go. I really do. <laughs> So just kind of sticking with the draft here, um, the Rams are really kind of looking, you know, they have eight picks in total um, and they're really looking at the middle rounds with uh, with kind of where they're going to be having the opportunity to really hit on some players, you know, between the uh, third and fifth round. I think they have four picks. So when uh, when you're looking at the, the those middle rounds, you know, there's so many different players and. I think that right now everyone is kind of thinking that they're they're going to get somebody at 37 that can be uh, sort of an impact player, whether it's a tight end receiver or a corner. Um, I think that's kind of what everyone's thinking. Um, some of Les Need's comments have led people to think that as well. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if that is the case. Now, if that does happen, when you start looking in those middle rounds, what position should they really focus on to get um, – with that third round pick, they have two fourth round picks and then an early fifth. Yeah. I mean, given how much he used speaking to McVay two and three tight end sets uh, in Washington, I I'd be surprised if the Rams don't come away with at least one more tight end and uh, from this draft hall, especially given how deep the, the tight end class is, that seems like a natural fit to me. Um, maybe, you know, even with Sullivan, maybe you're looking for an interior lineman, uh, particularly a center to fill that role long-term. I haven't seen Sullivan's contract terms and I know he's only 31 years old, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, it's not like he's at the end of his career, like we're talking with, with Andrew, but, um, you know, given his injury past and the fact that I don't think he's played a full season since 14, I, I think you're still kind of looking long-term maybe, uh, at the center position. Uh, I'm not sure that they're done at linebacker. I'm really curious to see once off-season workouts get going, how they're going to reshuffle this thing. Uh, what does Mark Barron's role look like in this defense? Uh, you know, and and what that could mean for other roles and responsibilities like Lamarcus, and and then in turn what you're looking for uh, off the waiver wire and and in the draft, kind of in these middle rounds that you're talking about. I mean, I, I think we have to be realistic about what the Rams have available to them in terms of draft picks this year and understand that the likelihood of finding uh, to your your term an an impact player uh, is going to be tough. But that being said, I like the potential in this draft to find someone who's going to make your 53 man roster and pair with his coaching staff can, can challenge uh, those in his position group to improve collectively and to give the Rams a better product as a group. Uh, even if we're not talking about, uh, let, I'm trying to remind myself what pick they have, make, pick 189 or something like that, kind of in the back end of the Rams um, selection, that's going to be a day one starter in the NFL. I mean, that's that's a tough ask for any coaching staff and for any player. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And it, <clears throat> I feel like in in some ways there's – what I, I, I would say is a little bit of unfair pressure on McVeigh because it almost puts him in a position where the picks all need to count, right? You know, <laughs> can't, 
In, 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 in a normal draft, in theory, you, you, you don't have any picks that, that you can miss on, but in practice, you have one or two picks that, okay, if they don't, even three picks, and if they don't work out, all right. Um, but but when you have the numbers that the Rams have, you don't really have that luxury. There's a need to, to find players that ultimately can, can provide some longevity within the right. system. Um, They're good organizational fits. They're hopefully exactly. going to be around for the for the remainder of their rookie contract, if not beyond. And you know, if we're talking about what's going to dictate the 2017 success of the Rams, I think it's a lot more about the development of you know guys who you've already invested in. Maybe someone like Josh Forrest, or maybe someone like Tyler Higby or Farrell Cooper. You know, what kind of leap can those guys make year one to year two, uh, as opposed to what is a middle to late round draft pick going to offer in terms of incremental improvement uh, on the roster for, for this fall in particular. It's fun. It's not funny, but it's curious you bring up tight end because, uh, and, 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 and I'm not questioning you in any way. I say this because we've had a couple people on the show. We've asked about that and they're patently like, well, they just went after Hemingway and Higby. It, it seems I, I, I don't see it, but you do, and and there's there's reason, good reason for that. I think when you look at the history of tight ends in this offense and 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 what the Rams have at the ready, uh, I suppose you could say it would seem to me be you know I, I think this is a fairly deep draft for tight ends. Um, but my question to you about tight ends are last year, you know, Higby would probably fall more under, not probably would fall under a pass catching tight end. Do you see them maybe trying to find another body, uh, to put on the offensive line at the tight end position? Or do you think we're going to see more of the same with sort of an H back guy that they can develop into a, halfway decent blocker well don't quote me on this one because i think your previous guest is a a far better person to speak to this kind of thing but i think i saw a video of um iowa's tight end is it george kittle going around the other day where he absolutely just mows a guy off the field uh in the blocking game um and I, i saw somewhere that that particular hawkeye was referred to as like the fifth best tight end in this class where normally he would have like a first round grade and so the combination of that depth and then knowing how successful McVeigh was in Washington with two and three tight end pairings and then trying to figure out what a two or three tight end scheme would look like with the, the Rams existing roster. Again, I, I'm just kind of putting pieces together in my head that, yeah, there is a need there. And this seems to be a draft where you might find a tight end who you have a higher grade on than you expected to fall to you at your draft position and it makes too much sense not to even though I have a lot of faith in Tyler's ability to come back for a big sophomore year and certainly Hemingway looks looks the part coming off the bus and looked the part in training camp and I personally was a little bit surprised that uh, he did not show up in the stat sheet in his rookie season likewise for Tyler who, who as you rightly pointed out was not maybe not um, delivering in the run game the way that the Fisher staff had hoped he might and so that might have cost him some opportunity 
Well, if it's any consolation, Lance Kendrick was dropping everything he could at, uh, at the other. <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, no, in, in, in all seriousness, the, the, the Rams really kind of sort of needed it an amalgam. If, if Higby could have passed block better, if there were situations in which Hendricks, if he could have pulled down a few balls. That's why it seems not, not curious about the tight end, but what – what direction they would lean toward because I feel you're, you're going to lose him. I, I, they lost Hendricks, right? Uh, they cut uh, Liz Kendricks. Yeah, they cut him. Yeah, they Kendricks. Yeah, okay. So, but you lose that up front and it, make no mistake about it, whatever people feel about him as a pass catcher, he, he knew how to block and, and, the Rams definitely need that if they're going to move the ball because there's some question over whether or not Todd Gurley can succeed in uh, an offense that that maybe is a little bit more spread-oriented, operates out of the shotgun a bit more. He's more of an I-formation runner. But as we were talking about with Justice Mosqueda a couple of uh, – couple podcasts to go what would seem to be the best bet would be to to invest in golf the, the shelf life of an nfl quarterback uh tends to be longer than the shelf life of an nfl running back and uh, you know just in in terms of investing into the future maybe getting a because I, I think Higby. You know, but I, I asked that uh, I was trying to find out when the last time a tight end had an outstanding freshman campaign was in the NFL. And, and apparently the last time anybody was outstanding as a tight end their rookie year was Mike Ditka. So, I, I there, you know, Tyler Higby isn't exactly off track or anything. And, and, and Tameric Hemingway, you've mentioned I think surprised a lot of people with with how frankly NFL ready this guy is and and seems to be. It is a shame he didn't get more looks. But how much do you think the tight end is going to feature in this offense? Like I mean is it is it going to be a mandate of sorts? No, I, I don't get the sense that this coaching staff offense or defense is going to try and, and you know fit a square peg in a round hole i mean if they don't come away with the pieces that they feel like uh, they wanted to this spring to make it work in the fall then they're gonna they're gonna spend the better part of the summer figuring out how to how to construct something that best suits the positions of strength that they have i i don't think that they're going to be insistent on running two and three tight end sets if they don't have two and three um you know nfl ready tight ends um, and I think they can go in a couple of different directions in that regard. I think the offensive firepower that is in that room now is creative enough and experienced enough uh, to make the most out of what they come away with. And the fact of the matter is the, the scheme that we see uh, in the first half of 2017 may not be the same as it ends up being in 2018 and beyond, depending on how sure. the roster continues to evolve and, and what Jared Goff's strengths and weaknesses prove to be. I mean, I think we have a hint of what those are after seven games, but uh, I think 
in the long run, we're going to look at the back half of 2016 as his redshirt year almost. And as he learns now a third offense in three years, you know, to me, his, his rookie season, um, he got a head start, but this is still it in my estimation. And I'm curious to see how he does in training camp and with a new system. And, and if he looks, um, if he looks like a rookie in August, or if he looks like someone who maybe came out of more of a pro style college system and is in, in, is more comfortable and is more ready to deliver uh, first or second year numbers as the full-time starter. Yeah. I think it was a lose lose last year. My personal feeling, I think, Goff was well. First of all, he was forced. You know, it, it, he it, Goff's the type of guy that 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 built the camaraderie with with these quarterbacks. And you know, Case Keenum hadn't been lighting it up, but it's not like he went out and threw fifteen interceptions to lose his job. And Goff stepped into that situation. You know, I'm sure he was sure as much as he was happy to be an NFL starter. I'm sure that at at another level, I'm I'm sure it couldn't have felt good to to take his buddy's job the way it went down. These guys are still human. And then I I don't think that there was a wealth of 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 of, uh, talent there for him. on the offensive side of the ball in terms of productivity. Uh, it, it may be there uh, on paper, but it wasn't delivering last year. So, you know, he kind of got the butt end of that one. And then I don't think the system was was really favorable to him. And, and you know, by all accounts and for everyone we've talked to, the, the coaching staff knew that, and yet they put him out there anyway. And, you know, things were what they are. I, I think McVeigh's handling of the situation will be better, but also will ultimately be more defining of what Goff's future is with the franchise, if that makes sense. And Myson, once he's done, over to you. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with, with anything you're saying. What kind of ran through my mind there is, this time of year is all about giving Jared a better chance to succeed and surrounding Jared with thoughts and reps and players that, that will enable him to be better as a sophomore than he was in 2016. That being said, once the season starts in my estimation, whether it's Jared or any NFL quarterback, it's not about it's not about necessarily giving him pieces to make him look better. It's about the quarterback finding ways to make everyone else around him on offense better. I mean, uh, to me, that's a sign of a yeah. great quarterback, and that's a sign of a sure. franchise quarterback. And yes. I know that's I know that's in Jared because I saw him do it at Cal. I saw him take a team that didn't beat a Division One opponent in his freshman year and ultimately take them to the postseason. And I saw a few things from him in 2017 that I knew were there, namely the, the pocket toughness and the willingness to hang in and to, to take blame on his shoulders when things don't go right. But, you know, I know this organization with the coaching staff through the front office and definitely through free agency in the draft, they're working really hard to give Jared the best possible chance he can have to succeed on Sundays. But when it comes to Sunday, I still ultimately think it's about that individual and what he can do for Todd and what he can do for Robert Woods and what he can do for Tyler Higby and what he can, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, Absolutely. Andrew, Andrew Whitworth on your left side helps. It, 
but it helps Jared then put the Rams with, from his pre-snap reads all the way to his decision-making and his delivery make the other 10 pieces look as good or better than they ever have. No, absolutely. You know, I, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. I actually, you know, I said the same thing last week that the thing that was most alarming to me, uh, while I point to the stats and when I point to the stats, I don't go by stats fully because they can be so jaded. But when I do point to them, I point to them and I say, okay, well you look at, Case Keenum played in the exact same offense and the stats are so different, you know, but even with that being said, that wasn't the, that wasn't what was most alarming to me. It was actually the fact that I didn't really see any real glimpse of him making the players around him better, which was the most frightening part to me. Um, So I agree with you. It's, you know, it's about going out there and taking, you know, what you have around you and making making them look better in some type of way, uh, which I didn't see a lot, didn't see at all really with uh, golf in his seven starts. However, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Andrew Whitworth. Um, one other player I want to touch on along with Andrew Whitworth, um, because we're talking about making golf better now. Right now is the time to do it. Uh, today they signed John Sullivan. Um, I look at this signing and I say, well, you know, he – He's been really hurt by injuries lately, um, hasn't really played. Uh, he was a really good center in the NFL. I think he had 93 starts under his belt or something like that. Um, he was a really good center in the NFL for like a four-year stretch, one of the best centers playing during that span. But the last two years or so, you know, injuries have really hurt him. Now, again, he's only 31 years old, uh, but I look at him and I look at the Andrew Whitworth editions and I say, well, now you have – an uh, unbelievable amount of experience thrown into that line. But above all else, you have a center that can really identify blitz and things like that to really help the quarterback, which is something that Jerry Goff struggled with a lot. Uh, with the signing of John Sullivan and the signing of Andrew Whitworth, do you think the Rams' focus should now shift to uh, – receiver and tight end or do you think that they should really continue to build because again these two players the reason they're so important and the reason they can bring that uh that awareness and point out certain things and help with making calls and slides and things like that is because they've played for so long and they have that experience they have that ability but they're older um so they're they're kind of like temporary solutions so is it something where the rams can They've given themselves some breathing room to be a little more relaxed and maybe wait to down the line to address these positions because you know they're going to have to address them again soon. Or can they now go on to other positions or even go to the defensive side of the ball, which is something that hasn't been talked about a lot, um, the possibility of them going defense early in the draft? I mean, it's a good question. I think you could see how the Rams starting five along their offensive line is now in-house. That being said, are they done with that position? Would I be surprised if they did draft an offensive lineman or if you know they added someone before camp or as cuts are made that might bolster that group? No, of course not because of you know where, they, where they're at and where they performed a year ago. Uh, I think the hope inside the organization, and it's, I think it's, a, it's not just a hope and a prayer, it's, it's well-founded, is the combination of Aaron Cromer working with that group and having seasoned veterans holding that group accountable and then the position shuffling that those two additions allow or create uh, might benefit the entire unit. 
And that's not to say that guys were playing out of position last year, but it is to say uh, guys might be in new roles this year, knowing that if they don't deliver on those roles, uh, they might not have a role. So I I think that whole force, uh, that whole confluence of factors can mean good things for this offensive line. And certainly having someone with an all pro caliber at the left tackle starts at all. And then, yeah, I think the one thing that we could say with some certainty is that the likelihood of the Rams giving Jared Goff a rookie center going into year two and saying good luck uh, was probably pretty low. So, you know, they, they had an approach, right? I mean, with, with going after Ryan Groy, and I, I mean, I think that was a, a smart maneuver. It didn't work out because the Bills, you know, the Bills jumped on <laughs> their opportunity to match, and, and rightly so. But uh, maybe as much as any offseason move to this point, that showed me a glimpse into um, the staff and the front office's thinking in terms of their approach to this offseason. And even though it didn't work, maybe in the ideal fashion, I mean, it'd be great if we were talking about Ryan Groy and why that made a lot of sense. Um, at, at least it kind of it gives me a, an indication that they have really done a lot of homework and put a lot of thought into this and that they had plan A, B, and probably C, D, and E. And so they've done what they can within the constraints of their roster and their financial situation to address an area of need. And we'll see if it works out. We'll see if John Sullivan is healthy. We'll see if if he fits with what Coach Cromer and Coach McVay want to do. And... um and if not, look, there are going to be other names and there are going to be other bodies. We'll, we'll kind of look back in August at training camp and, and probably laugh at some of these conversations we're having because of how much things evolve uh, as rosters fluctuate. You know, I'm glad you mentioned money and, uh, you know, how they what, how their constraints are right now because of caps uh, and what they've been able to do. Because you look at Tremaine Johnson and, oh, my goodness, they've just blown so much money. Um, they just mishandled that entire situation. Um, it's not that when I say, oh, my goodness, they've blown so much money. It's not that Tremaine Johnson is such a bad corner and doesn't deserve some money. It's just that there's not a corner in the league that's worth the 32, 30, uh, the 32 million, 33 million that he's gotten between last year and what he's going to get this year um, with the two franchise tags. There's, there's just there's no corner in the league that's. It's worth that. Um, so when when you look at that and you say, well, they've blown it and now they they're really strapped for cash. Now that cap number that he carries, is there any chance? And it was talked about three weeks ago that he was uh, his name was being floated around for trades. About me, I'm kind of of the belief that the trade talk hasn't stopped. I just think that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen draft weekend during the draft is when it would happen. What, what, what would you say if you had to kind of put a number on it, you know, like a, a 70-30 of him being traded or him playing out this playing out this, uh, this fr- franchise tag with the Rams this year? What do you think Tremaine Johnson is going to be next year? Ooh, that's, uh, I'm not sure I can break it down into percentages, but I will say that the Rams and any franchise, um, you don't agree to that tag and to that price point unless you would be happy with that particular individual playing out that year at that rate. And I think if, if Tremaine Johnson is playing one side of the field and getting paid to do it at that level next year, then uh, let's all hope that he's producing at a rate that's uh, if not concurrent with that, with that salary um, certainly absorbs some of the sting of, of that price tag. That being said, uh, are there going to be numerous 
um, opportunities maybe to include Tremaine in an offer on draft weekend. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in recent years, we've seen how that can be an asset going into a draft, especially if you need to move up. Um, so I could see that being potential there, but I, I don't have any indication. I guess uh, I'm giving a very poor answer here. I don't have any indication where I could give you a percentage like, yes, that's the Rams plan and expect Tremaine to go on draft day. Um, it's something that I would expect to be on the table, and that's probably as far as I could go. Speaking of moving up, I want to talk about hypotheticals. As we were talking with Joe Goodberry and looking at playmaking guys, uh, one of the things that Joe was telling us is that there are a number of teams that are getting more and more nervous about Corey Davis because he's yet to work out for anybody. Um, they, you know, they could put on the tape with what he did at Western Michigan, but until he actually turns in a workout, you know, he basically said if he goes out there and runs a four four with like a thirty seven inch vertical, you know, he's fine. But until he does that stuff, um, there's a, you know, he, he's going to have that that stock of a guy who played at a group of five school, which I mean, you look at what Derek Carr did and he still didn't get taken until basically about this same spot that the Rams are picking. Um, but uh, yeah, I want to talk to you, but like say like a guy like Corey Davis is there and the Rams can get he's he's there at about 25 and the Rams can get him for the price of their their second round pick, the the number thirty seven, and either a sixth this year or a, a, a fifth next year. Are you okay with that? Do you, do you say move up and get Goff a playmaker? Because you already said that the the, the onus right now the onus is to to. to is on the coaching staff to make golf better. And then once the season starts, the onus is on golf to make whatever they give him better. But right now he needs obviously to, to, to get a couple more playmakers on this offense. Would you be okay with the Rams moving up? Or do you think that no, the Rams should really hang on to as many picks as they can. Yeah, I don't have any objection to moving up. No, I, I'm all if here's let me preface this by saying I get the sense and I wasn't here for last year's draft, but I get the sense that there's a real clear line of communication between this coaching staff and Les Need in terms of what they're looking for. And so there's no doubt in my mind that if they have an evaluation on an individual that they think is going to make Sean McVay's offense better, that Less will know that and less will will pounce on an opportunity. I think if if I've learned one thing about the way this group um, works together and, and I'll just uh, as a shameless plug, we're going to have the two of them on the 26th um, in a pre-draft show on ESPN Los Angeles. And I think that's a really unique uh, show one. But I also think it speaks pretty positively to how quickly they've fallen into sync that uh, the night before the right. draft, the head coach and the general manager are going to are going to make a joint appearance. I mean, that, to me, that's that's new, that's fresh, and that's very positive. Um, so, anyways, uh, back back to your question. I mean, 
I don't have any personal affinity for Corey Davis, um, but I, I do right. know that in the in the receiving core, um, we need the Rams need height, preferably size, preferably uh, replacing kind of that what Kenny Britt gave them, and then the ability to stretch the feed field vertically. Uh, unfortunately, right now, I don't think that you can say with a, a whole lot of confidence that in the existing group of Rams receivers, you have the ability to to go over the middle steadily or to take the top off as, as much right. as you would like to. Now, um, now maybe this, this staff can find innovative ways and, and develop players such that they can extract that from this group. But I think those of us who follow Rams football closely know that whether it's uh, Davis or someone else, yeah, that, that was, that's a much more concise way of delivering what I was dancing around. Yes. They need to <laughs> They need a one. They just, they, it's, it's, they need a one. And that's it. You know, I, I, I'm not necessarily trying to get you to buy into Corey Davis. He's just the guy that I can think of where a lot of people agree. He's the consensus. If you're looking for a true NFL number one, this is the guy that's probably the closest to it. But like what a better way to have put that. We're like, if OJ Howard were somehow still there at like 24, 20, like, I, you know, I would be perfectly okay if, if Sean McVay were like, you know, let's go ahead and get that guy. I hear he's pretty decent. Yeah, that's where you depend on your personnel department and their evaluations. I mean, if he's a transcendent talent or if whoever else, whether it's Mike Williams or like, again, whoever you feel strongly about, then I think Les's track record shows he's not afraid uh, and his not a gun is not afraid to... Yeah, no, to go do it. I mean, I, I don't think you exist very long in this profession by just standing pat. That being said, I, I think you also have to be equally comfortable with waiting another year. Whether you know, like I, I think you have to be willing to go into next season without a six four receiver if there isn't one available that makes sense. Uh, that's just you know, you can't you can't throw good money after bad you can't throw uh good draft equity after bad you just can't right. so um if if it means being patient then so be it again the likelihood of a rookie wide receiver from the second round or beyond coming in and becoming a true nfl number one it's just it's very very unlikely and if the rams can do it good on them but i i, th- I think you have to take a, a more realistic approach to what's going to be available to you and try and steadily improve your team one pick and one acquisition at a time and if it's not in place by september 2017 i think we all understand that yeah that's one of the things that i was curious of you know you you have to take that flexible approach to say, okay, we wanted a number one, but as we got to where we either felt comfortable moving up or it just happened to, to, to fall to us, there simply wasn't one available. Um, and, and we're not. Address, gonna... And if you address, and if you address another need for the next four or five years, solidly, if you lock down your safety position or you find another corner, um, or you find a tight end, then then you're going to eventually have more capital, whether it's cap room or draft room, to address that in future years. So, yeah, yeah, don't, and that's don't 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 pass on a good piece that you also need, I guess, just to find 
Cut off your nose to spite your face might help here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're saying the same thing. Yeah. That no, sense. that's. Yeah, that's 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 pretty much the 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 way that I would approach the situation. Uh, there, there's been some thought of I, I've heard people toss around guys, you know, like Pat Elfline of Ohio State would be. I mean, but obviously, I think that was addressed with the signing of Sullivan, unless you wanted to make Elfline a guard of some type. Um, or even play him at a tackle position on the right side opposite uh, Andre Whitworth. I don't know if that's it. I know Elfline's pretty much played all across the line for Ohio State. I don't know what's in his repertoire as far as the skill set, though. Um, the question I, 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 I would ask you then is, is this. I mean, it's it, – <clears throat> everybody – Everybody knows next year is going to be a rough year. I think what people are looking for is to see that improvement, to start to see the 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 the, the plan for McVay to, to see it start falling into place, to see the development of his system. By the end of the year, you'd like to see something close to, to what's going to end up being the, the L.A. Rams offense, not the Washington Redskins offense, as it's being called now, but the L.A. Rams offense. Um, what do you think the, the biggest priority for McVay, what do you think it is beyond the draft, beyond the contracts, beyond all of that, the biggest priority for making this offense go starts with what grooming Jared Goff to be the quarterback of the franchise. And I think he's going to take a very ground up approach with that. I don't think that he's trying to rush Jared to be ready to win every game in 2017. I think he's going to be very methodical about grooming Jared to be his quarterback for many years to come. And that's, that's mental, that's physical, um, that's schematic. And I, I think there's a lot of potential there. I think he's working with great raw materials, but I, I think we all agree that there needs to be tangible progress at that position. Um, and, and they're all interrelated, right? I mean, you can, you can accomplish that in a lot of the things that we've already addressed in terms of surrounding him with great pieces and great coaching, but um, of course, that's the one that I go to immediately is laying a foundation to make Jared successful, not just this year, but long term. Mason. So long term, when you're looking at Jared Golf, um, what would and we were just talking about this a moment ago with uh, Joe, but uh, what would you consider to be a success for Jared Golf now? Joe mentioned that um, being able to pull, um, and we were talking about kind of Jay Gruden and the success that he had with Andy Dalton, and um, then he carrying it over to uh, Washington and Sean McVay working under him, and then them both they're having success together with Kirk Cousins. And Joe mentioned that if you can get golf to the level of Andy Dalton or Kirk Cousins, then the trade the trade up and the picking of golf 
that would be considered considered success. Would you agree with that assessment? And like, what type of quarterback do you really do you really think that Jerry Goff can become? Like, what what where do you see his potential really capping out at, or where does it lead him? Yeah, I, that's a good question. I'm trying to envision like what 2017 Jerry Goff looks like, and what would make uh, kind of Rams Nation feel good about the direction that this franchise is heading under his leadership. I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a steady level of poise and consistency that you want to establish, but I also, I know I crave, I'm sure the Ramley does too, like that signature moment. Right. Um, right. Kind of, and having not even won a game yet, of course we can't point to point to one, but you want to see a, you want to see a dramatic drive. You want to see a, uh, put a team in a huddle on your back and take them down the field, you know, needing a touchdown to win. And, you know, if, if it's not a playoff campaign in year two, then so be it. But I, I know that Jared Koff, cause I've watched him for, what is it? Five years now, four years now. I know he has that aptitude and uh, it's just a matter of getting him the tools to translate that to the NFL. And, yeah, I, I can't predict what the fall is going to hold, and I certainly want, wouldn't want to cap Jared with any expectations um, because you're never as far away as, as you think you are in this league, and you're you're never as secure at the top as you think you are either, unless you're Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and the Patriots. So, um, <laughs> Even then, Roger yeah, Goodell I, might have something to say about that. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're a pretty resilient group, as, as we found out <laughs> firsthand in Foxborough last year. But um, no, it's it. Jared for me is a very difficult topic because, like any NFL quarterback, it's subject to so many factors, and I feel bad for Jared that he didn't come away with a positive result in in his starts last year. I, I think that makes for a long off season, but from everything I've heard and seen, it's going to be a motivating force for him and getting him an infusion of of offensive minds and schemes and ideas. I think will serve him well, and uh, it's it's got to be the best offseason of his life. There's no question. A couple last things here before you go. I want to apply that same line of thinking to McVay. Obviously, nobody expects him to win the Super Bowl this upcoming year. Even the playoffs, right. I don't think, are a reasonable expectation. What is personal growth for Sean McVay from your discussions with him, from what you've gotten from people around the facility? I mean, I know what Sean will say. Like, of course, like every coach, he wants to win a Super Bowl. I think that's standard I got hired talk. But what do you think personal growth for Sean is? Yeah, boy, that's that's one heck of a question for someone who's doing it for the first time at the highest level. Right. Uh, and I'm, I'm anxious and curious just to see it as I'm sure you are as well. Uh, what assures me about McVeigh is I'm sure the reason he got the job in the first place is he gives the aura that he's been doing it uh, for more than his 31 years. And he's, I think he's got an old football soul, if not an old football resume. And my sense is that his approach is going to be welcomed by that locker room because it already has been by this organization. 
I think uh, there are a lot of good things that Sean is doing and saying right now from the way he assembled his coaching staff to the way he's handled his media responsibilities to the way he's approached uh, the existing players and the free agents that the Rams have acquired. I think he has the personal skill set to, um, to win the hearts and minds of a locker room. And I think we will see that in pretty short order on Sunday. Now, there are going to be Sundays where the Rams beat an opponent, I think, under McVeigh that you didn't give them a chance to beat in 2017. And that's going to be a, a really euphoric feeling. And I think that's going to make the fan base feel like the Rams hired the right guy. And there will likely be a moment of adversity for McVeigh and for Jared and for everyone else that we've talked about. And what I would like to see characterize the McVeigh era is that the Rams respond to that adversity in a in a more urgent and productive way than perhaps they have in recent years. Um, because I think that as much as anything um, is what probably uh, cost the, the previous coaching staff their, their tenure. And so I think that would be kind of the, maybe the intangible thing that I look for from McVeigh and his group in year one. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a fair and equitable answer across the board. Now, on the flip side of that, I want to ask, what does success look like for Wade Phillips? Because obviously he'll be measured under a different metric. This right. defense this defense hasn't been incredible, but it's also not been awful. It's just, it's kind of been. That's not what Wade Phillips is here to do. That's certainly not why you hire Wade Phillips, and that's not why Wade Phillips takes a job. So... Every party involved agrees that just an okay defense isn't acceptable. So what what is the bar then for Wade Phillips in 2017? I think they need to dominate. I think for Wade, for the defense, for the Rams, they need to dominate. Uh, I That group needs to take a step forward from even when I thought was a very good level with very little assistance from the offense last year. I mean, if the offense improves even incrementally, the special teams is going to be phenomenal again. Um, and, and the defense, even transitioning to a new scheme, has to deliver on par or above what they gave in 2016. Um, success for Wade, I think, will uh, – you know, I never want to measure a coach by an individual's performance, but I think we're all going to look to see what kind of year does Aaron Donald have. Uh, I think that will be at least one metric by which – uh, this defensive staff is measured because of how important he is to the Rams 2017 and future. Um, I think, you know, how does, how does Robert Quinn look in that role is another big one for me. Uh, how does, how does the pass rush as a whole and does a revitalized Connor Barwin become an impact guy? I think that, uh, that all kind of plays in, but uh, without knowing what his starting back end is going to look like, it's <laughs> a little tough to say. Um, in terms of, you know, anything beyond, you know, sacks and takeaways and that kind of stuff. And that is the question, because pretty much everyone we've talked to, and we even talked to uh, Ben Albright, who's from the Colorado area and is uniquely familiar with, with Wade Phillips and Kayvon Webster. And, you know, he pretty much laid it out there and said, like, look, this isn't a guy that's going to be a number one across from – across from Tremaine Johnson, you know, he knows the system. He, he's 
a guy that can that that can bring that sort of intelligence, that tutelage, that mentorship. Um, he, he he knows what's expected, and and in and, and in that he can be effective. Like I mean, wasn't to say this guy is going to be a complete flop, but I I think even if and you mentioned this earlier, you pointed out, brought it up. Even if, even if they they uh, uh, don't do it to to put someone opposite Trumaine Johnson, they should do it because they may not have Trumaine Johnson moving forward. That pressing need for corner is there, regardless. So. Uh, un- until that back end is locked down and now with TJ McDonald going, you know, that's that's the thing that's hard for Rams fans to understand. And, and maybe you can shed some light on this. A year ago at this time, it's Slesneed comes out and says priority A is to re-sign the secondary. A year on, Rodney McLeod, gone. Janoris Jenkins, gone. Uh, T.J. McDonald gone. Um, you know, uh, count count the count the players who are gone, and then you've got Trumaine Johnson on his second franchise tag. And I I think the frustrating part is how does something that's listed as priority A go from being priority A to a person being <laughs> kept like yeah i certainly understand the frustration there uh i you know i can't really speak to that comment in particular or how it played out kind of before no no with this franchise but um you know kind of one other one other metric maybe for phillips and and being measured in year one with the rams would be you know, creating takeaways. I, I think about that secondary as being a hard hitting group, but not necessarily a ball hawking group. And it would be great, you know, if, if this defense can evolve in the back end to maybe take advantage of some better opportunities when they are in the proximity, because as much as we harped on Rams receivers dropping passes last year, I think the secondary would like to have a few back too. So, um, sure. you know, I, let, let's uh, let's keep an eye on the interception count as maybe an, another metric for the Phillips defense in 2017. And I want to prop the Rams up here for a second, too, because not everything is doom and gloom. Look, TJ McDonald was suspended for the first eight games of the season prior to the Rams. You know, the Rams didn't bring him back, and then he, you know, that's announced, and then he signs with the Dolphins. So the Rams obviously knew something that the general public didn't know until they knew. And so... When you look at some of the players that left, you understand why. Like, I think it was always going to be difficult to keep Janoris Jenkins and Rodney McLeod. I think that was the hard part. And and, and the question then becomes, which you already said you can't answer. I'm just saying the, the, the general question then becomes, so what happened with 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 the uh, uh, Janoris Jenkins part. And honestly, that's only ever going to no- be known between Janoris Jenkins and the Rams, unless one of them decides to air it out. And even then, even then you can only count for that as half the story. So I, I well, five, five years, five years and 63 million was a pretty good half of the story. Yeah. So. Yeah. It really wasn't a bad reason to leave at all for sure. And, and when you look at how much money the Rams have locked up in some other players, it makes sense. And once they had to tag Trumaine Johnson, 
that really limited their options. So uh, anytime you can get a contract like that, I mean, whew, I wouldn't mind a, uh, I wouldn't mind sixty three million dollars. I'll tell you that much. Um, but but you certainly look at was once a dominating secondary. It's less the frustration and more what was once a dominating secondary is now a shell of itself. And in a way, defense, that secondary needs to be a bedrock. And so I think that's why some people are looking at this draft. And because it's so rich at the cornerback position, Mison's espoused to this position. It's so rich at the cornerback position that that's where they want them to go and get a cornerback. And from my logic, from my thinking, well, if you get a guy like Wade Phillips, well, it would make sense if you promised him he could have the number 37 overall pick. That's how else you get a Super Bowl (laughs) winning defensive coordinator (laughs) when you were the league's worst offense and lost two games to a team that went 2-14. and So you have to promise him something. I'm just saying, it would seem. So, I mean... If the Rams were to go, say, defense and build up through the secondary and the defensive line, do you have an issue with that, even though earlier you said giving Goff help now is the most, well, it is to them seems to be the most important thing? I think the uh, one of the best things you can do for Jared Goff is give him the football in great field position. And uh, if you can find a talent, especially in the back end, who can create an opportunity uh, to put your offense on a short field, I think that's uh, in many respects just as good as protecting his blind side and giving him a, a red zone target. So uh, I think whether it's, you know, again, through the draft or in future opportunities through training camp and whatnot, if you can find uh, a talent in the secondary who can capitalize on a bit more of the havoc that the front seven is creating, especially with, with uh, Connor joining the fray. I think those opportunities are certainly going to be there for Tremaine Johnson and for LaMarcus and for whomever else is going to be a part of that Rams secondary. Yeah, I would agree with that. Well, I think that's a perfect place for us to leave it. Mike, since out of questions, I think I've picked your brain completely. <laughs> um, one of the th- I, I think we can end it by, by agreeing on this. It, there's nowhere for the Rams to go but up, and there's every reason to think that McVeigh has the ability to not just elevate Goff, but to elevate the team. A rising tide floats all boats, and I think McVeigh is, is the kind of guy that brings with him a rising tide. And the hiring of Wade Phillips, I've said this, and I, I don't think San Diego will ever come out, or excuse me, Los Angeles will ever come out and admit this. But I think the real reason that the reason they hired Anthony Lynn is because there were reports that the Rams were going to, Sean McVay was going to not, not just bring over uh, Wade Phillips, but Anthony Lynn and, and the Wade Phillips domino fell. And then all of a sudden within a day, San Diego offered Anthony Lynn the job. I don't for one second think that in the back of their heads that they knew, like, look, if we if we decide to let this guy go, there is a very real chance that he is going to be the offensive coordinator of the team across the city. 
And he, he everyone's going to be looking at us going, why didn't we hire him when he's lighting us up? So I, I, I just, I just have the, I, I don't know. I can't prove that, but I think that I, not that Anthony Lynn was undeserving in any way, shape or form. I, I don't think that I just, it seemed to be trending like he wasn't going to get that head coaching job. Then San Diego hires him right after LA makes the announcement of Wade Phillips. It just, I feel like if nothing else, the Rams certainly helped him get the job. So, uh, but I, I, Josh, I, think, I love, I love, I love your line of thinking there that the Rams got Wade Phillips with the promise of the 37th draft selection. And then Anthony Lynn got the job because of Wade Phillips taking the Rams job. That's, that's quite a, a string of events that lead to uh, Lynn becoming a head coach in Los Angeles. Hey, hey I, I think Anthony Lynn was going to be a head coach at some point, but, at, but sometimes certain things happen that help, right? I mean, his name was definitely associated with the Los Angeles Rams, so I'm not I'm sure. I'm sure whether his agent floated it out there or not, it sure as heck worked. So, and that's the point, well, right? I will jump on board with with something you said at the start of that comment, which was that I think McVeigh and his staff will have. Um, the vast majority of the say in terms of the year to year improvements and uh, the results in 2017 versus 16. I think a lot of uh, what we're spending time and thought on now is are the draft picks that might make an impact in 17, but more likely found kind of a, a bedrock of depth for, for next year and way beyond. I think for the Rams to improve incrementally, it's going to be about this coaching staff getting better efforts and results out of the existing group of players that return. And yeah, have to like. Go, sorry, go ahead, Mason. No, no, I was gonna just ask, like, what do you think just of the overall staff that was put together? Like, what's your thoughts on it? Like, um, it's really, it's really diverse. You know, you got some of everything. You got some really young guys. You got some, some older, more experienced coaches. You know, you have coaches who've had a lot of success in positions, and then you have coaches who are kind of first time in their roles and um, very little experience, and you know. McVay's kind of giving to them what someone gave to them, gave to him, you know, their, their first big opportunity. So it's a really, really diverse coaching staff that's kind of all over the place. Like, so what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, but at the same time, I think it's cohesive in that a lot of them come from similar trees and pedigrees. And so I think, you know, they come in with an understanding of what they want to get done and how they're going to communicate it. And I think that's going to be an immediate strength of this staff is their communication and the language that they speak. Um, but you're right. I mean, there's there's a, a wide range of age and background and specialty, and I think it's a good mix. I mean, I, I think in terms of the the offensive firepower, especially in terms of court, working with quarterbacks, you've you've jacked up the um, the intensity in that room to be certain. And then you know you've you've balanced out the youth of McVeigh with the age of Wade, and um, you know keeping John Fossil, I think was huge, uh, just tremendous. And then you've also got, I think you've got a good number of um, position coaches who have had higher level of responsibilities, have had some coordinated responsibilities and are now working with a position group. So not only can they be good resources for Sean, um, but they also kind of see the forest through the trees and, and can see uh, the game day and the practice flow through a couple of different angles. So, uh, you know, like any group, it, it all looks great 
when they're assembled and when they're hired. And I think the work that they put in this off season and in the fall uh, will be the, the true, the true litmus test. Yeah, I was, I'm glad you brought up the fossil hire. I think that, you know, when, when, when Anthony Lynn came in, or excuse me, when Sean McVay came in and, and there was talk about him bringing Anthony Lynn and Wade Phillips, the my first thought was, you know, a lot of coaches talk about coming in. And this was the thing with Ed Orgeron when he was being rumored uh, uh, because he tried to get the president's state job at one point. He did his agent called about it. And, and Ed's pitch was, I can, I, I, you know, I'm not necessarily an X's and O's guys, but I know how to assemble a staff that can, that can win. And then, you look at what he did at LSU with, with Dave Aranda and Matt Kanata, um over there. And, and it same sort of essence over here at Los Angeles. When McVeigh came in, the thing that he knew right away was just how much he didn't know. And he yep. surrounded himself with guys who knew. And then... What a lot of coaches would come in and just clean house and say, this is, you know, no, empty out the building. He went through and he recognized John Fossil for exactly what he was, a special teams coach that you do not get rid of. And he kept him. And I thought it was a shrewd move. I thought it said an extraordinary amount about Sean McVay and what how dedicated he is to not just winning. It's not about winning, but even if he doesn't win, he's trying to leave this organization in better shape than they found it. And make no mistake, even if this coaching staff doesn't win it, I'm not saying that they won't, but I'm just saying, let's take that hypothetical train down to Crapsville. There is no way in heck you're going to convince me that these players aren't going to learn an immense amount from not just guys like Matt LaFleur, John Fossil, and Wade Phillips, but the rest of the staff who, as uh, uh, JB pointed out, have also been coordinators as well as position guys who can see the forest through the trees. These players are going to learn and that's at the bare minimum so if you come away knowing that your players are automatically going to learn and be more knowledgeable about the game of football because of the staff that you've put in place if that's your bedrock if that's your foundation you're starting in a pretty damn good place yeah, and I'll, I only interrupt this to say that there was a comment that Chip Kelly made late in last season about the challenge of being a first-year head coach, and it read to me almost as if he was throwing some of his existing staff with the 49ers under the bus because it was essentially it's tough to get your first choice of position coaches in particular when you're a first-year head coach because of the policies in place you know, across the NFL, oftentimes you have to wait a couple of years before someone that you really want for a specific role even comes available to interview for you, much less make the switch. So when I saw how quickly and successfully McVay assembled his staff, to me, that was a really reassuring sign for who he is and who he's going to be as a head coach. 
because I, I think at the end of the day, he and the Rams are really pleasantly surprised with the group that they've assembled in just one offseason because it's rare to have the opportunity to land someone like Wade Phillips on your first swing. And, and they got a lot of their first choices. It's very clear from the group they assembled. And that's tough to do. Yeah, I don't want to take it quite a swipe across the bay or, you know, across the division, but you look at the 49ers. Now, look, they wanted their guy in Kyle Shanahan. They got their guy. But in doing so, they had to wait. And as a result, they ended up with some coordinators that, well, frankly, may not have been as awe-inspiring as 49er fans would have liked. And then as a result, they also got a GM who's a first-time GM. So now you have a first-time GM working with a first-time head coach. You literally have the blind leading the blind. Now, I know these are two gentlemen who have been around the game for a long damn time. But you know what? Look, <laughs> being a GM is not a simple job, and being around the game does not guarantee success. It hasn't guaranteed success for many players that have tried it. It has guaranteed success for others, but it's certainly not a guarantee. So when when and I'm not using this to to to, to dump on the Niners so much as to say I 1000% agree with you. When you look at the staff and how quickly it came together, how effortlessly it it, it seemed to come together as well. Uh, it says a lot about the Rams. It says a lot about McVeigh. It says a lot about Wade Phillips uh, that they were able to command their staffs that quickly, and and and, and they did it, and they did it while keeping one in-house guy. Yeah, your mention of the Niners there made me think of a question. If, before I run here, I wonder if I could throw one back at you guys because uh, I've been sure. dying to see the schedule for next fall. I mean, I just cannot wait to see the 2017 schedule because of how grueling the start to 2016 was, but also because I just want to see you know, when Jared is going to have his opportunities to get his first wins and uh, you know, when the, the rematch with the Redskins is going to be, who we play before going to London, all those sorts of things. But uh, all that to say, do you guys have a hunch – where the Rams and against whom are going to open the regular season. <laughs> you have a preference. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't say I have a preference. I do have a hunch and that's only because I've noticed this um, the year before last that the NFL has begun um, really making the schedule to start with uh, division games and to end with division games. Uh, it's uh-huh. kind of been the trend. Yep. That's kind of been the trend outside of the two most two uh, the two most recent Super Bowl teams playing on on Thursday. They'll start the season. That's um, really been division games. Now, considering last year it was the 49ers, um, and you know they everyone loves the 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 Seahawks and Rams game because that's always a good one. I'm going to say the Cardinals. I'm going to say they start off with the Cardinals. You know they haven't started off with the Cardinals since 2012, so I'm going to say they start off with the Cardinals. And on, it will on be the road in, in L.A. Yeah, it's going to be in L.A. No, our home game against the Cardinals is in London this year. So, Ah, that's yeah. true. Uh, but yeah, it would have yeah. to be in Arizona. Yeah. See, I, 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 I would think that if the league got their druthers, they would make it San Francisco. I, I know with Mycin, they would uh, notice that it's division uh, games that, that tend to be the first week. But... They played them last year, so I wouldn't be surprised if they did, uh, 
you know, like the 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 cagey veteran in Pete Carroll versus the young buck in in Sean McVay, um, Rams versus Seahawks to open the season, and uh, yeah, that 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 would be my guess. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I'm all for just running it back. I'd say Monday night in San Francisco at Levi. That's what I would again. say. Get get, get 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 the two new the two new head coaches. Goff wasn't playing. He wasn't even active. Right? So just run it back and That's let's true. just given the way those given the way those games went last year. I just want to put the 49ers first as far as I'm concerned. I- that's what I was thinking, and, and I was thinking that because of the two new head coaches that it would make sense for the league to do that because I've also noticed that the league pays attention to storylines. Like, teams just conveniently happen to be playing each other when there's been off-season storylines between the two of them. Like, the league's not stupid. So it would make sense, but I don't know. Has the, is the league, is there precedent for the league doing that? Like, do they not care about that? Or is that something they try and actively avoid? Well, we'll find out soon enough. It's only a couple of weeks away, but, uh, you know, that's the only thing between now and the draft that uh, I'm really, really honed in on because obviously <laughs> it dictates what, what, what our whole life is going to look like for the back half of 2017, but also just because, Man, that first month is going to be so critical, and uh, the the Rams really had it rough last year, and it proved to be the best part of their season outside of the opener. So, uh, just out of curiosity, I wonder if you guys had any hunches or any preference. So, thanks for humoring me. Sweet, sweet revenge would be my preference. I I feel like if they don't do a rematch, then it would be the Seahawks. But if the league is open to a rematch, then I'm with you. I think they'll do young coach, first-time head coach versus first-time head coach. It just makes too much sense. But, well, JB, we know you got to get, and we want to get as well. So what I want to do right now is our usual, man. Uh, take your time, talk about social media, talk about what you got coming up, and uh, make sure you plug once again that draft podcast here at the end so we can get as many ears listening to that as possible. Yeah, thanks. No, you don't, don't need anything uh, on terms of Rams radio promotion or, or on my side. Just appreciate you guys having me on. It's been too long, but uh, it's a good time to get a chat in before we turn our attention to the draft. And uh, I just encourage everyone to tune in on the eve of the draft. Uh, Wednesday, the 26th, we're going to get to know Sean McVay a little bit better, uh, get a sense of how he and Les Snead are going to work together in the draft room over the weekend. And uh, it's going to be a great night. Uh, ESPN Los Angeles, stream it if you're not in the market here on ESPN LA 710. And uh, that's kind of the next big thing we're looking forward to. We're chatting here on on a Wednesday night, so I guess it's one, two, three weeks away. Hard to believe, but uh, the draft's right around the corner. So I'm happy that they lined this event up because, one, I, I want the fan base to get to know uh, Sean a little better, and certainly I want them to get a sense of the partnership that he and Les Need are going to orchestrate uh, and restock in this roster. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. You, you guys did an outstanding job last year with Jeff Fisher for getting getting people to know, to, <clears throat> allowing people to get to know Jeff Fisher. And as you always said last year, he he never shied away from a question for you. And so in the back of my mind, I'm kind of hoping it's going to be, I'm hoping and, 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 and praying for you that it's going to be more of the same. That big day is going to be like, oh, you ask me anything, man. I'm an open book. I'm just, I'm hoping it's going to be an awesome experience, but I know it's going to be a, a, an, an awesome listen one way or the next, man. No, I mean, he's going to be, he's going to be a, a real media savvy 
and uh, an asset for our our programming, no question about that. And I think the other thing that you'll see is uh, he's really going to empower his coaching staff to get some in front of the camera, in front of the mic opportunities. And so I think we'll get to know staffers and position coaches even uh, really well. And I think that bodes well for them in their future. I think that's an important part of of, uh, elevating and advancing in today's NFL as as a coach. And I know Sean is keen on that because he wants what's best for his staff. So a lot to look forward to in terms of how, uh, the Rams and our radio team interplay, I think, going into next year. And I've I've said this. I said <clears throat> I was talking with somebody. I said if you had to list the top five in-house jobs, like you're not 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 like jobs, but the job being done by the in-house team. If you had to list list like the top five in-house jobs, like the Rams would have to be in your top three, if not at number one, like the, the in-house content done by the Rams and, and, and the stuff that you do, the stuff that miles and Danny do it's, it's nothing short of incredible insightful. And it, it really, really makes the stuff we do look like crap. So I just want to thank you endlessly. for that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Not at all, but uh, you're you're generous and you're right to to highlight some of those names and some of those efforts. I mean, I've been really struck by that, especially this off season, the way that they have. Uh, I mean, transparent is a, is a word that comes to mind, which I would not have figured in terms of how they've handled a, a coaching search and free agency. And then I, I think uh, Nate Bain, our social media manager, had a great idea with. Uh, some of the Madden highlights for new players like Robert Wood, just given an early look at what those guys are going to look like and horns. It's just been uh, really well done and well orchestrated. And those people uh, never blinked despite the losing streak. They worked as hard in week 16 and 17 as they did in one and two. So kudos to them. You're right. No, they, they crush it. They absolutely crush it. And the thing is, it's not just the same crap that you think of. And I, I truthfully did say this. I'm like, it's not just articles and like videos. I was like, it's stuff like, the FIFA tournaments that they brought in with, with uh, what was it, uh, Chris Long, right? Uh, <clears throat> where, where they shot the uh, the little where he played him as uh, Arsenal. It's 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 the odds and ends stuff like that that the Rams do that they're on the cutting edge of that other end. Like the best way, and I hope that I know you being a SoCal guy will understand this. They are the L.A. Kings of NFL social media. <laughs> the Kings are pretty clever. Yeah, yeah, they are. They're, in my opinion, the best in the NHL when it comes to just social media. Like, they're, they're top-notch. I legitimately believe just sitting back, seeing how other teams interact, the Rams – are, are top-notch, and, and you are a, a part of that, JB. And I thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with my sin and I. I know the fans love it, and I know that the fans always look forward to your returns to the podcast, man. Yeah, sure. Well, I wish I had more time and bandwidth to really break down the film on hundreds and hundreds of college prospects going into the draft, and I could tell you with some certainty who the Rams should and will draft, but uh, not my specialty, but nonetheless, it's it's an exciting time, and I like following it just like you guys do. So once we get them in-house and, and once we start to get to know them and observe them practicing, I'm sure I'll have a lot more things to uh, offer you guys.
Yeah, once they get in house, I say we reconvene this podcast and 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 do a uh, like a look back on what we thought and and see what came to be, and we'll we'll see how miserable we were predicting. Deal. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for all of us. So uh, be sure to follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow Scotty at Sports Speaks. Uh, that's he sh- he speaks, she speaks. Um, you can follow Mycin at Mighty or Mycin, and his name is spelled M I S O N E, like my son. That's literally how it came to be. Listen to the podcast. One day we'll have you tell the story again for the people who missed that podcast, Mason. Uh, you can follow me on, at Twitter or on Twitter at Fight on Twist. And please follow the site at Turf Show Times. We're also on Facebook, Snapchat, your chat, his chat. If you Google Turf Show Times plus social media, there will be a link that will take you to it. That is us. So I uh, want to thank our guests, Joe Goodberry of Bleacher Reports NFL 1000 and the voice of Los Angeles Rams, Mr. J.B. Long himself, for their time. And we will catch you next week here on SB Nation's home for the L.A. Rams, Turf Show Times, Turf Show Radio. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Oh, what a great audience. Let's dim the lights for this next one. Nope, too much. Ah, there it is. Gotta get things just right. Like Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Tell us what you want to pay and we help you find coverage options that fit your budget. And now, the mood is right. Wait, the lights are back on again. Trudy, can you? And now it's completely dark. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher. I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Recode Decode. Every week I talk to tech and media's key players about how they're changing our world. I interview tech executives like Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, political figures like Hillary Clinton, and media personalities like John Carreyou, who literally wrote the book on Theranos. Once again, the name of the show is Recode Decode, hosted by me, Kara Swisher. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. See you there.